It's a request. It's a certainty. But God will do if we walk with him. And it's a comfort to hear, especially when we're in the dire words of Jeremiah. <laughs> I had one fellow comment to me last night that he left services yesterday without a behind. Kind of chewed it off, I guess. He didn't have much of one to start with. <laughs> I guess we're going to lose, lose weight during this feast. That's a good place to start. All in good fun, but uh, these words hit home to all of us, really. I mean, it's, they're ageless. Someday they'll be ancient, past history, and essentially forgotten once we achieve glory in the kingdom of God. Right now, they get reenacted over and over and over again in the history of man because we are slow learners. And here, we are the last generation. This generation will not disappear until these things occur. There is, well, I just started to say there is, there are two New World Orders coming. One will be very powerful, very deceptive, and very destructive, and will not last very long. The second one will last a millennium, it will last through a great white throne judgment, and it will last eternally. And it will be added to, and the increase will never end. And that's what we're here to consider being a part of today. The painful part is what it takes to get there. But we have that goal, we have that purpose, and we might as well know what it's going to take. We might as well come to grips with that. So let's pick it up again today in Jeremiah, <clears throat> beginning in chapter 4. We did finish yesterday, uh, chapter 3, barely got through it, let out late. I, I began to wonder what's wrong with me uh, that I didn't realize what time it was. and I did start late because there's an inside clock in me after all these years that, that will tell me just automatically when I'm getting close. I mean, it's very rare that thing doesn't go off in there. And I'll look at my watch and know what time it was, but I hadn't spoken that long yesterday. We still had some tape left, and uh, it just got away. So we'll, we'll try to remedy that today. And we have about the normal amount of time anyhow. All right, we finish chapter 3 in verse 25, showing the shame and confusion that exists and reigns supreme in the church today and the lack of understanding we have of what has occurred and the causes given. We've not obeyed the voice of the Eternal, our God. That's where we left off. Now, chapter 4, uh, there's a little hope given. If you will return to me, O Israel, says the Eternal, Return to me. If you will, then do it. If it's in your purpose, if it's in your mind, if it's in your heart, if you see the necessity for it, go ahead and do it. He repeats it for emphasis here. Don't just talk about it. Don't just think about it. 
Don't it just acknowledge it needs to be done, and we've been doing that for a long time, haven't we? Do it. There's nothing to it but to do it. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, I don't want to see them anymore. Get rid of them. Get them out of my sight. Then you shall not be removed. You will not be taken into captivity. Or die off the face of the earth, whichever happened to come your way. And you shall swear the eternal lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness. Those should be the words very heavy on our lips. That God is alive. He is there. He will answer his... Uh, he will do what he has said he will do. He'll fulfill, fulfill his promises, I'm trying to spit out. He lives. He lives in truth and in righteousness and in judgment. And the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. If we do this, the nations would glory and live in God's pleased smile. For thus says the eternal of the men of Judah and Jerusalem, Break up your fallow ground, and sow not among thorns. If you're going to do works, if you're going to live, if you're going to try to seek God, why keep planting your crop among thorns? Find good ground to plant your seed in. Why do we keep following vain practices? Why do we keep working in areas that are not accomplishing anything? In other words, we need to be a little more efficient here. Have a little more perception of what will produce good fruit. It is so easy to waste our time and energy among thorns. Thinking things, doing things in areas that aren't going to help us. Put your time and your effort, if you, you know, he uses a farmer analogy here. If you're going to farm, you might as well just use good ground. Circumcise yourselves to the eternal, uses a different analogy, and take away the foreskins of your heart. That is not just a New Testament understanding. They had physical circumcision in ancient Israel, but even here in Jeremiah, he talks about the foreskin of your heart. In other words, does your heart exist in such a way that God can see that you are spiritually circumcised? It just it was only circumcision was just a, a show that you were an Israelite. So if your heart is circumcised, then God can see that you're a spiritual Israelite. That's what it's all about. We true followers are we true followers of God today? Because the physical flesh in circumcision means nothing. Paul made that very clear. It is not important. doesn't need to be done. It is nothing. It has no spiritual meaning whatsoever. It's not even necessary to do, Paul said. He only had, I think it was, was it Timothy he had circumcised, just because of the attitude of some. And it's clearly stated that way. He didn't want to be a stumbling block, so he had it done. But it was not something that was necessary and had not been done to that point. But the foreskin of our heart to show that we are spiritual Israelites is very, very important. 
So for, circumcise the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn, that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. If our heart's right, our attitudes will be right, our conduct will be right, our thought patterns will be right, and God will recognize that and turn his fury away. Otherwise, he says, it's just going to be unleashed. So really, it's up to us, isn't it, in that sense. He's sovereign. He has decreed what will happen if you do this or what will happen if you do that. So it's just up to us which will happen to us. And we've already seen many times that some will be preserved out and some will be destroyed. And it's our option. It's up to us to determine where we'll be. If, I mean, none of us are going to uh, achieve the point where we deserve protection. But if our attitudes are right and we make the changes we need to make, he's going to show mercy and count us worthy, whether we're worthy or not. So he says, Declare you in Judah, publish in Jerusalem, and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Wake people up. Let them hear the warning. So, hear the warning, brethren. We all must. Publish in Jerusalem, that is the church, and say, uh, gather, or cry, excuse me, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the defensed cities. Now, how does that square and how can it be explained in terms of the other scriptures we show that say, come out of the cities, go dwell in the field, get away from the population centers, uh, gather yourselves away from that, and yet here, he says, trouble is coming, go into the defense cities. Does this stand at cross-purpose with the other scriptures? How could it be that? What do armies who are invading attack first? Generally, the cities. And it says our cities will fall. And why would you want to go there? I breezed over chapter 1, verse 18. Okay, it took a whole sermon, but I breezed over verse 18. He says, For behold, he's talking to Jeremiah here, I have made you this day a defensed city. God had put protection around Jeremiah. Now, he was only one man, but God declared him a city. A city is where people generally go to dwell. A city is where they gather themselves together. And where they gather themselves, if they came out of, let's say, one of our big cities and then gather themselves together, they become what? A small city. So even Jeremiah symbolized a place where God would put his protection because Jeremiah was obedient to God. Jeremiah was fulfilling the job that God had given him. And if those Israelites of that day wanted protection and safety, there was only one place they could go because 
The whole city, the whole nation, Israel, Judah combined, the whole thing was going into captivity. And Jeremiah was the only place he represented protection for God's people because of the message he gave and what would happen if they obeyed. Now, they wouldn't have attached themselves to Jeremiah unless they agreed with him, right? Unless they understood the threat that was coming and began to repent of their evil deeds, they would not have been comfortable with Jeremiah because he was giving a very strong message of repentance. So God set him as a symbol of protection. He said, I make you a defense city, an iron pillar, and brazen walls against the whole land. God would put protection around Jeremiah just like a brass wall that could not be penetrated. Now what does he tell the end time church? Get out of the cities that are depending upon man for protection. God has always told his people, don't depend upon the strength of arm. Don't look to your bows, to your swords, to your F-16s or whatever's the latest. I don't keep up with that stuff. I'm sure they've gone way beyond that. But uh, you're defense systems that man has devised. God could care less about them. That's why they don't interest me in the least. We have all kinds of things we devise to protect ourselves. The threat of the bomb, nuclear, uh, and mainly our air power today. God says don't look to the hand of man for protection. Look to him. And all these Israelites, all these Judahites, had bows and arrows and spears and all kinds of military ways, horses, chariots, to protect themselves. God said, that won't work. You will be destroyed. Your defenses won't help you. Your defense cities won't be any good. But if you look to Jeremiah, I am going to put protection around him. Now what does he say in Zechariah 2? about the end-time work. He said he would, that little villages would be developed with cattle and men there, an agricultural society would be developed, and he would be a wall of fire around it. That's a defense. He talked about Jeremiah having a wall of protection and that he would be a covert from the heat, so even though it's in the desert, wherever it is, God will ultimately protect from the heat so that you can grow things. Probably the artificial fuels that man is using will be cut off so that you don't have air conditioning and swamp coolers. You don't have artificial heat, so you're going to need shade from the heat. And you will need protection from the cold. God has said he will take care of that. He has said that it will be led by the two witnesses and that therefore protection would be afforded at least up to a certain point and that is when Satan is cast down and the devil and his armies will come after the church. And that is the time God will remove that protection and you must flee for your life to the place of safety. 
That's the way God lines it out. So what he says here does not contradict what we've been seeing in those other scriptures whatsoever. Really what it does is underlines it, capitalizes it, makes it more bold that that is the story. Gather together and say... Now, doesn't Zephaniah 2 tell us, gather ourselves before the decree of destruction comes? Yes, it does. No way of getting around it. Assemble yourselves. Gather, assemble, same thing. And let us go to where God is putting protection. Not man, that won't help you. Jeremiah was a symbol of what God would protect. Set up the standard toward Zion. Raise the flag or the banner in the direction of Zion. Now that gives you an awful lot more insight, doesn't it? That it is something in the direction of some Zion somewhere. Wonder where. Or strengthen, stay not. Don't dither around. Don't stay Strengthen yourself and move the flag toward Zion. From wherever you might be, move it toward Zion. For I will bring evil from the north and a great destruction. So this gives us the time element as well, that the time to do that is just before God unleashes all the Gentile kingdoms on Israel. And it's an end-time prophecy. Now, if you say, well, this, I mean, this can't be the heavenly Zion because we can't go there. No man has ascended and gone there except he which came down. David hasn't. Nobody has. So we can't flee this earth and go to a heavenly Zion, even though a heavenly Zion is mentioned in a heavenly Jerusalem. We're still earthbound. And just before the wars that sweep the earth and destroy Israel at the end of the age, God says, set the standard toward Zion and assemble yourselves in that direction. So it has to be speaking to physical people and people who are still vulnerable to the destruction and the wars that will come on Israel. Now, he can't be referring to the physical hill of Zion on the outer edge of the wall of ancient Jerusalem, because we know very well that is going to be the scene of major battles. And that cannot be the place of protection. So it has to be a different Zion somewhere. I don't think it's coincidence that God has given us a beautiful place like this, a great part of his creation, that just happened, coincidentally, to be named Zion. It is in about the same climate zone as Jerusalem. It has the same kind of rock, red sandstone, as Petra and those areas around Jerusalem, along with white sandstone, which they have there as well. And there are so many similarities, it is amazing. We've been in there about, we've talked about this before, so I'll, I'll leave it there. Some will believe that, some will not. But it won't be long until we shall see. 
what God has in mind. But it must be something that is recognizable and something we should focus on and do something about. Otherwise, he wouldn't tell us to do it and leave us hanging, would he? Well, God tells you to go do something, and he doesn't let you know somehow what it is he has in mind. How are you going to do it? I think God has revealed something to us that is very important. And I think others will find it out in time. But if a place is to be prepared, a place is to be readied, then somebody has to do the prep work. And that's why I keep saying, I think we're the janitor crew, uh, we're the prep crew coming ahead to prepare for what God is going to do. We're not the only ones that have recognized that Zion is named as the place of safety in Scripture. I don't know where Mr. Armstrong originally came up with the idea that it was Petra, but I suspect it was from Protestant commentaries, some of whom believe that that is true of Petra. But if you look at all the places Petra is mentioned in the Bible, and you look at all the places Zion is mentioned in the Bible, and you read them all, see what conclusion you come up with. It's overwhelmingly on the side of Zion. And he says that the Assyrian will come into our land. Where is spiritual Israel today? Most of it was called out in America. Uh, quite a number in Canada, which is attached and is a brother, and a smaller amount in England, and beyond that it tails off very rapidly. So when the Assyrian comes in our land, he's talking about the good old U.S. of A. is what he's talking about, along with Canada and Britain and ultimately all Israel. But where most of the spiritual Israelites are is where most of the death and destruction will be centered. That's what Satan is most after. I don't consider Petra and the land of Moab my land. When I went there on a visit, it didn't act, look, sound, or feel like my land at all. It belonged to some of these Arabs that I saw running around. Well, yes, it does say for Moab and Ammon to protect God's people. I've said before, there's only one place on earth named Moab. One geographical site in Utah, of all places. It's not in the Middle East. There's nothing named Moab over there. Get out your world atlas. Not there. That is where the Moabites and Ammonites settled in the country of Jordan for the most part. But it does not appear to have anything to do with the end-time church. Those are misinterpretations of people who still view the Middle East in terms of the physical Jews and what few physical Israelites might be there. But where is most of Israel today? It's moved. It's gone. It's not there anymore. And many Moabites and Ammonites have moved as well. And uh, a lot of these Mormons have some roots back there. I think there's some Edomites among them too and Hivites and all kinds of Vites. be interesting to see, won't it? 
All right, he says, assemble yourselves in a place that will be protected by God. Now, this place he's talking about here, I don't believe, is the place of safety. I don't believe where we are is the place of safety. Never consider that, never thought it. Some have thought I believe that. No, I don't. I hope you don't either. It will be a place of temporary protection for people's, God's people to gather in villages, raise their own crops, have animals, and show the world, by example, how you can live when God is blessing, protecting, guiding, leading. The two witnesses need something to witness for if they're to witness against the world. You need something to show the world. I mean, you can, you can go anywhere in the world and say, God can do better than this, and you people are all wrong and need to repent. Oh, okay. But show me something better. Show me something better than what I have. You have to do that for people in New York. Their view of what is good is so perverted they think New York is a good place. Oh, I love New York. Go ahead and giggle. You've got to do that with Texans too. <laughs> You've got to do that with virtually anyone. See, the world is sold on itself. They think what they have is wonderful. And when this new world order comes in, the beast, the false prophet, all those folks that are with them, and it's going to be the whole world, save a few, are going to be say, saying, isn't this wonderful? Yeah, look at New York and Miami and San Francisco and Seattle and Denver and Kansas City and Chicago and what's left. Isn't that wonderful? Look what happened to it. Now how about you look at these little people out here in the desert that God is protecting. They've got a wall of fire around them. You can't stop them. And they're out there growing avocados and tomatoes and pomegranates and watermelons and whatever. And they have cows and goats and chickens and ducks and geese and all kinds of things. And they're blessed. They have rain in due season. The nuclear fallout is being kept away by the covert from above as well as the heat. Don't you need some contrast? Don't you need something to show that if you follow God, this is what happens, and if you don't, look at what you got left. But the whole world, minus the United States, which will be destroyed, you know, in Israel, it's, it's going to be in captivity. But the rest of the world will be jumping up and down talking about the great evil that has been destroyed, and what a wonderful place the world now is under the new world order. And isn't the beast great? And the false prophets, just wonderful, I love him. That'll be their view. There has to be something that can be pointed to, I believe, on this earth that can show a contrast to what is being done. A city, villages if you will, but a city, set on a hill, cannot be hid. And that's what God tells us we should be. So you see, this isn't just to save our hides. 
God has a very, very important purpose he's working out. And he is choosing a few right now to be a part of that. He's in the process. Hasn't gathered them all together yet. He will do that. He's calling a very, very few, I think, to establish a spot, to make it possible and have a place for people to go when the time is right. We have been charged, I believe, with that responsibility. You're charged with that responsibility if God reveals the knowledge. Because, as Herbert Armstrong often said, knowledge is dangerous unless it's used. If you have it and don't use it, then you're in danger of judgment from God and incurring his frustration, his displeasure, and even his wrath. So, I felt, having come to understand these things, something had to be done about it. So I said, I'm moving towards Zion. Not living there, but I certainly came a long ways toward it. The original move was from Alaska to North Carolina, and there is where the knowledge began to be disseminated greatly, and the scriptures began to truly come to light. So I began to lobby moving west, and CGG came that close to moving their entire headquarters to western Colorado, or eastern Utah, or somewhere in this general Four Corners area. We're looking at places, made trips to check it out, made trips to check Zion out, right here in this park. And then for reasons I won't get into, decided not to do it. But the knowledge was heavy on me. So I began to lobby to move west. And it was finally suggested we move to Colorado. And I said, where's the door? I'm on my way. I got us this direction. Then at the second feast, I didn't want to come empty, so I loaded up a trailer uh, before the feast and started the move over here just before the feast of 2001. Put it in storage, ready for the next trip, because I felt we weren't close enough to Zion. So a lot of people began to move pretty soon, and we had people in Kanab and St. George and here and there, and we began to realize, well, I've been out, I've been out made several trips out in this area within anywhere within 400 miles of here, looking for a place that God might have chosen to make available as a place to live, to begin to establish what Zechariah 2 talks about. Not that we were trying to be important and fulfill scripture. That wasn't the attitude. The attitude is if you have this knowledge and God wants it done, then whoever he gave the knowledge to might ought to be the ones to go do it. Because if you don't have that knowledge, how are you going to do it? So the ones he gives the knowledge to are the ones that he expects to do something. So we settled in Kanab and thought, well, what's next? And looked around, tried to find a place, couldn't find it, couldn't find it. And then the place we have currently just came out of the blue. And better price, better terms, better everything than I even anticipated asking for were offered to us. 
I went in there ready to negotiate, boy. Uh, I was primed. I knew what I wanted and what I would ask for. And in every case, what I asked for, he volunteered from the very beginning less. How often does that happen in a business negotiation, whether it be real estate or anything else? John Reitenbaugh told me at one point, before I ever even went to Colorado, that if God wants us somewhere, it will have to be given or almost given to us. And I would say that that land was almost given to us. The interest rate was incredible, incredibly low. He even lowered the price from what he had advertised it without me even asking. How can the people do that? I want X number of dollars for this car. You show up and they say, I changed my mind. I'd, I'd really like less. How many times has that happened? I only need so much money a month to take care of my sister. We'll just tailor this thing so that that's all you have to pay. It's incredible. Virtually given to us. We're living on it now and we're each family paying about 75 bucks a month for use of a whole acre. I have heard, in fact I heard someone talking just yesterday in one of the shops here in Springdale. Uh, he and his father apparently have come into the Kanab area and bought a lot of land. And he was he wasn't talking to me, he was talking to the gals that were running the shop. And he said, there will be half million dollar lots in Kanab next year. Don't you wish you'd have bought a pocket full last year? Californians are coming in and snapping them up. And they're going to raise the price. He said, Kanab's the next St. George. When we first moved to Kanab, what was it, two, three years ago? There were for sale signs, it seemed like, almost on every other house. You go out through the ranchos, man, you take your pick. You can buy almost any house out there. And if they didn't have a sign-up, you could have probably knocked on the door and said, you want to sell? And it's, oh, yeah. <laughs> Couldn't get rid of them. Now the demand is up, the for sale signs are gone, and land's going to cost more than any of us could afford. A half-million-dollar lot? Now, maybe he's blowing a certain amount of smoke ring up his ear. I don't know. But uh, for one city lot, you're going to pay nearly double what we did for 110 acres. Now, is the land we have going to look like a better bargain all along if this comes to pass? Maybe the real estate market will completely collapse and you can go over there and have every lot available. I don't know. We'll see. That was this guy's opinion. But the prices have gone up over there. And the demand is up. Partly because people with great big money from California are coming in and snapping them up, so then everybody thinks, oh, it's worth a lot more. But what God opened up for us, I think, is going to look better and better as time goes by. He knows what he's doing. And then what about when he protects us and gives us the rain or the dew from underneath or however he does it and opens springs and rivers, ponds in the desert, it'll look a whole lot better. He promises he'll do that. I read it in jest the other day when we had a flood in here. 
but uh, that promise is in there. It didn't take me long to go back there and find it. Right there to be read. It's in there. So when he says, gather yourselves and assemble yourselves and go where I will be a defense for you, because that's the only defense that's going to work, and set the standard towards Zion, we might better figure out what Zion he's talking about, where and how, and what it means. Because evil from the north and a great destruction is coming. See how this is beginning to combine? It, it, we're getting to a timeline in Jeremiah that's beyond what we had in Isaiah. In Isaiah, it was easy to see that most of it was speaking to the church first, later to the nation. And in Jeremiah, these timelines are beginning to fuse because he will go back and forth, you're going to see that, between church and nation, church and nation. And he kind of rolls it all up in one big ball because this destruction is coming on most of the church as well as the physical nation. So Jeremiah is moving forward a little bit on the timeline, and God did put it, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. He's moving forward on the timeline to show what is about to be unleashed, and it will be unleashed on us if we do not do our part and be a part of what God is doing. We're going to be a part of what God is doing to Israel. Verse 7 confirms that. The lion has come up from his thicket, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on his way. In other words, this thing is getting close when you see the conditions here. And do we not see the conditions in the world increasing very rapidly where more and more they're talking about the destruction of America, the dissolution of America, the removing of the borders, destroying the sovereignty of America, and at the same time our U.S. government is closing base after base after base They've got 150 on the cut list right now. They are taking our military away on purpose, knowing what is planned. If you think Bush and those cronies in Washington don't know what is coming, and I'm talking Democrats and Republicans, they're all in it together. They fight on partisan issues, but behind the scenes, there are people on both sides of the political landscape that know exactly what's going on and are aiding and abetting and planning it. Bill Clinton knew, George Bush Sr. knew, and now George and Bill, who could not stand each other, are traveling around the world together. Overseeing the destruction. So we're getting close. Time to do something. The lion has come from his thicket. I have walked into areas where there are lions. And in deep grass where you can't see lions. And I'll tell you what, that is a very scary place. As the bumper sticker says, if you're scared, say you're scared. I was scared. A lion is a fierce, fearsome animal. A big male can weigh four to five hundred pounds and has paws that big that can knock your head off. That's the kind of animal we're talking about coming upon our people. It's a symbol of it. 
is one man approaching a thicket that could contain a lion or a leopard, you feel very vulnerable. I've hunted in areas where there were leopards, not particularly lions, although it could, could have always been the case. But there are always leopards around anywhere. They can go over any of the fences they put up. And you never know. Not long after I'd been over hunting in a very well-known leopard uh, area, I read in the paper about a guide, tour guide, had the bus there, and it was night. They were going to go out and they have these night rides where they have the lights and you can see the animals and see them killing and eating and various things. So he was there overseeing the people getting in the bus, and a leopard came right out of the night, grabbed him by the neck, killed him, and drug him off. Tourists got more than they'd paid for that night. Scary thing. I've gone into thickets after bears that weighed 1,500 pounds. That'll scare you. Now I'm describing this, not to say how I'm brave, how brave I am, because I was scared. I'm using it as an analogy to show how dangerous this is. When you face the lion, and here we have a worldwide lion or a coalition of lions that are set to destroy all Israel. That is their goal and purpose, and God says they're going to get it done. The third will die of famine and pestilence, then the sword will come and kill another third, and one third will be taken into captivity, become slaves, and many will die there. Until only one small tenth is left by the time Christ returns. Truly scary. New Orleans did not even start to do that. There was a lot of physical destruction, but there were very, very few lives lost by comparison to the damage that was done because most everybody evacuated. See, we have in our modern world ways to get away from a lot of things that come. But there's going to come a time when the Gentile hits, but there's no way to get away. People are going to die by the tens of millions in this country. Hard to imagine. But we've seen a very small foretaste. He's on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate, and your cities shall be laid waste without an inhabitant. Do you want to go to your cities? Or do you want to go to defense places that God calls his cities or villages? He uses one man as a symbol of a city. So it doesn't have to be big to fit in the definition God is placing upon it. For this, or because of this, gird you with sackcloth, lament, and howl. We've heard people howling over the television, over people buried in the rubble of earthquakes and tsunamis. We've seen the sights and the sounds when terrible destruction comes already in this world. Because this is coming, lament and howl, for the fierce anger of the eternal is not turned back from us. Is it going to do any good to pray about it? Is it going to be good to ask for deliverance once God decrees this is going to happen? We'll get to that. 
And it shall come to pass, verse 9, at that day, says the Eternal, that the heart of the king shall perish, and the heart of the princes and the priests shall be astonished, and the prophets shall stand back in awe or wonder. In other words, this is going to scare people half to death. The leaders of the land, all kinds of leaders, religious, political, whatever, are lumped together here, <coughs> and they're going to be astonished and in awe of what is coming to pass. Then said I, Jeremiah had a comment to make. This isn't God talking to Jeremiah. Now Jeremiah says, Then said I, O Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying, You shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the soul. Now, how do you correlate a God of peace and love and mercy with a God that will do this? That was Jeremiah's physical reaction. How does this fit together? You know, so many people today would say, God wouldn't do that. I even heard a major national commentator recently say, how could you say that an intellect, a great intellect from somewhere, did this to New Orleans. What he was implying is there can't be a God, and if there is a God, like Christians say there is a God, he wouldn't do this. That was a little bit Jeremiah's reaction. That was uh, George Will I'm quoting from very well-known guy on the Sunday morning talk programs and editorials. How can this be? Have you deceived us? Don't you think there are going to be a lot of so-called Christians in our country who will say, how could this be from God? Well, isn't it written here by God that this will come from God? Yes, it is. Shouldn't stagger us at all. But as human beings, it's kind of hard for us to say, how is the God of peace in this? We can look at the church today and say, how is the God of peace in this mass? Well, he's going to produce peace, but sometimes it takes an awful lot of trouble and difficulty, tribulation, and so on before peace can come. Peace is not automatic. God has to work at producing peace, but it is one of the fruits of his spirit. And he says, if we're like him, and we are peacemakers, you have to make it. It is not natural. War, fighting, arguing, quarreling, is human nature. When there's fighting, arguing, quarreling going on, People are reacting humanly, not according to God's Spirit. When we indulge ourselves in those things, we are reacting humanly. And it takes getting through that and coming to have God's reactions before peace can be achieved. Do we have perfect peace among ourselves right here in this room? No, 
We're still reacting humanly, carnally, selfishly in all too many instances. That's why we don't have perfect peace. But we are called to be peacemakers. It is one of the fruits of God's Spirit. So if we don't have peace, that doesn't mean God isn't here. It means there's not enough of His Spirit here, and it means we better seek God and come to have the fruit of His Spirit. That does not come without work. It's easy for us to say, well, if God's here, why don't we just have peace? Well, shouldn't that be obvious? It's because we're not peaceful. If it's because we'd rather war and fight and show our egos and our vanity and our selfishness instead of being meek and humble and thinking others better than ourselves. Doesn't the scripture plainly say we should esteem others higher than ourselves? I wonder how many people in the history of all mankind have ever lived up to that. Very, very, it is a very, very high standard. doesn't come easily. You and I might achieve it some moments, some hours, some days, but we certainly haven't achieved it across the board as a regular and steady way of living. I'll guarantee you that. So it's a good question Jeremiah poses. How can this be? Well, God said you'll have peace if you live my way. You'll have war and destruction if you live your way, Satan's way. And since this is coming, it must be obvious that this Christian nation and this Christian church have come short of the standard set by God. Because it's coming. So it isn't that God is lying. He will produce peace. He is a peacemaker. But the pain that is required to produce that peace is going to be excruciating. Verse 11, At that time shall it be said to this people unto Jerusalem, A dry wind of the high places in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan nor to cleanse. Even a full wind from those places shall come to me. Now also will I give sentence against them. God says he's going to send hard, dry winds. That's the kind of wind that destroys. Not a cleansing, a fanning, a purifying wind. You know, the breeze can clear out <coughs> bad air. A breeze can purify and cleanse things, and sometimes after a rain and a breeze comes through, it just smells so good, ozone levels up, and you want to kick up your heels like a young uh, colt, and maybe you can't kick up your heels anymore, but you kind of feel better. can be purifying and cleansing, but God said, this isn't the kind of wind I'm going to send. This is going to be one of those Santa Ana winds with great power, and it will be destructive. Symbolism of destruction. We've had a lot of winds, not dry ones, but high ones recently, and they are bringing destruction, and they are showing the way toward far greater destruction in our country. 
So I will pronounce sentence or judgment against them. Behold, he shall come up as clouds, and his chariot shall be as a whirlwind. Speaking of the Gentile now, coming as a bad, hot wind. His horses are swifter than eagles. His airplanes will be certainly swifter than eagles can fly. Woe to us, for we are spoiled. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness, that you may be saved. Now he's addressing this, verse 1, to Israel. Are there Israelites in the Middle East today? Well, they're mostly of one tribe of Israel, of Judah. But when he speaks of Israel and Judah, he's talking about two different things. Judah is just Benjamin, Judah, and Levi. The rest of the ten tribes, or the other ten tribes, were to the north. And they're to the north to the day, north and west. But nearly all the Israelites had moved out of Israel by the time the Babylonian captivity occurred. They'd gone on into Europe. They weren't even there. Only Judah was taken captive of those who remained. Well, he's addressing Israel here. And he's talking about Jerusalem. But how do you make an end-time prophecy about Israel when there are essentially no Israelites in Jerusalem? The setting, geographically, must be somewhere else. And there also must be a type of Jerusalem, which is the church. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness. Cleanse yourself that you may be saved. Here's your hope. Here's your opportunity. Cleanse yourself to be saved. Doesn't Haggai tell us, that the priests must make a difference between the clean and the unclean, and that essentially it is not being done. Well, most of the churches, if you ask them, do you make a difference between what is good and bad, what is clean and unclean? It's, of course we do. But all these scriptures indict the church today saying that it's not being done. It must be something that needs more attention than the church overall is giving it. I think that only follows. They're not doing it. They may not be saved. How long shall your vain thoughts lodge within you? How long are you going to keep thinking you can just go on doing what you're doing and everything's a-okay? When the destroyer of the Gentiles comes, it's going to be too late. You won't be saved unless that heart is cleansed of wickedness. So we must concentrate on what is wicked and what is righteous, what is clean and what is unclean spiritually. It doesn't have to do with any of the ceremonial things of the Old Testament. The spiritual principle is brought forward. The ceremonial washings and ordinances and so on have no meaning. They are not necessary. We don't need to do them. Just like we don't need to do circumcision or animal sacrifices. If you're going to do any of those, God says you've got to keep the whole law. If you're going to circumcise for a religious purpose, if you're going to put the women out of the camp once a month for a religious purpose, you also have to sacrifice animals and do all of it. It's not necessary. We have to put anything impure out spiritually. Those physical things mean absolutely nothing, but the spiritual principle is brought forward. 
It must be done. For Boyce declares from Dan and publishes affliction from Mount Ephraim. Dan was the northernmost tribe, and that would be the one that would be worried first, right? <laughs> You're the northernmost, and all this destruction is coming from the north. I don't know that it will necessarily come over the polar route to America, but it comes from all those Gentile nations which were the enemies, and they were from the north at that time. Now, it may have something to do with exactly how it comes and where it comes from. It's from all those Gentile nations that were enemies of Israel, wherever they might be today and wherever they're scattered across the country, or the, the world, I mean. But a voice declares from Dan, they were the first in the path of destruction, being the northernmost tribe, and publishes affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make you mention to the nations, say this, Behold, publish against Jerusalem, that watchers come from a far country and give out their voices against the cities of Judah. As keepers of the field are they against her round about, because she has been rebellious against me, says the Eternal. God has set his face against all Israel, Judah as well as the rest of the Israelites. Your way and your doings have procured these things to you. You can't say it's not your fault. Can we say, honestly, that the things that have happened to spiritual Israel and Judah now to the church are not our fault? But isn't that what most of the church is saying, I repeat again, that it's not our fault, it's somebody else's fault? How can you say that, asked God? Real easy to blame somebody else. Transfer the guilt. Can't be done. God sees through it. Your ways and your doings have procured these things to you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart. We don't like to be bitter at heart, do we? We don't like to be frustrated and scared and in shock because of what has happened. Because we see people physically dying on our right hand and on our left hand. It's been bad enough seeing a thousand on our left and ten thousand on our right spiritually. Our friends, our relatives, our neighbors going other ways. It's going to be even more shocking when it's physical blood and literally a thousand on your left hand and ten thousand on your right hand dying before your very eyes. Not going to be pleasant at all. It's one thing to see it on television happening in Kashmir, or as in the tsunami south of there. It's not quite as personal as if you're standing there and you can smell it and see it and feel it and know the people that are dying. It becomes much more personal. I can watch someone weeping and wailing over a loved one dead, crushed. It doesn't strike nearly as hard as holding someone that I love dead, bloody, and crushed. It's coming to a town near you. No, it's not coming to a town near you. It's coming to your town. 
and you and me. There's only one hope to escape it. Verse 19, my guts, my guts, I am pained at my very heart. The seat of emotion is in your guts, your midsection. When really bad news comes, you feel sick in the middle. My heart makes a noise in me. You're scared. You go in shock. What does your heart do? Beats fast, palpitates, fibrillates, scared. Your heart, as they say, is in your throat. Pained at my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace. Can't stop, keep myself from screaming, crying, wailing. Because you have heard, O oh my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. How is it going to feel that day if you're left behind when it's announced there are incoming missiles, when it's announced foreign troops have invaded America? They already have. They've been stationed in New Orleans. We've had a Chinese faction in San Diego for years. We've had a German Air Force base in New Mexico for many years. They're already here not in great numbers, and they haven't started the destruction yet, but our government has already allowed them in and invited them here. Our leaders say, trust us. But one of these days, you're going to hear the trumpet and the alarm of war, and it's going to be on our shores, and it will be vibrant and active. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is spoiled. Now, is this something that takes a long time? Suddenly are my tents spoiled, and my curtains in a moment. This is going to be blitzkrieg. It is going to come very rapidly. It will come as absolute destruction from the skies, and however the destruction is delivered. It's not going to take long. We are being betrayed by our national leaders in the first place to allow some of this to begin to already be here and be set up. They are setting up concentration camps. One of the reasons for closing the military bases may just well be to store slaves till they can be shipped to the labor camps of China and Germany and South Africa and wherever. How long shall I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? How long is this going to last? How long must I endure it? For my people is foolish. They have not known me. God speaking again. They are sottish. What do we call a sot? Someone who's staggering around drunk. Sottish children. Foolish. Idiotic. When you're really that drunk and you're staggering around, don't you appear very, very foolish? We are a people who are living in a very foolish fashion. And we're going to be caught just like a drunk running into a tree and then trying to show the officer that he can walk a straight line. If you're sitting back watching that drunk, it can be very amusing. You can hear him try to talk lucidly. He can't do it. 
They can't walk straight. Really stupid looking. We are going to be very stupid looking in the eyes of this world. In a moment, suddenly. They are sottish children and they have none understanding. They don't know what's going on. They have no clue. The church doesn't have a clue to what is about to be unleashed on it. You think this spiritual warfare and this spiritual destruction that has been occurring is bad. Wait until all this physical destruction is piled on top of it and 90% of the church will be in the middle of it. Nine out of ten. Let's just for a moment use that analogy right here in this room. Nine out of ten of us, if it were to happen right here, according to the way God says it's going to happen, nine out of every ten would die in this or go into captivity. Here's about ten over here, and there's about fifteen over there, and man, put these together, there's ten here. One out of that ten would live and escape it. When you start talking about United and Philadelphia and living and uh, those are the three biggest but go on and on and on to four or five hundred of them. Tens of thousands of people. Not many will survive. And do you think by virtue of the fact that we're so, so wonderful that we would also escape? Can't afford to think that way. We better be scared. I tried to say scared, and then I tried to say scared, and it came out halfway in between. Maybe we'll be scared. We won't be able to talk right. Now, the good news is it can be escaped, and there is still time to prepare. There is still time to clean ourselves up. I don't know how much time. There's still time to solve some of these problems that you and I have had for a long, long time and we've been avoiding overcoming. Some things we'll work on, other things we've kind of put aside for a rainy day or when we get around to it or when we fall out of love with that particular pattern of thinking or acting to the point we want to overcome it. But we reserve that one for later because we really don't want to overcome it. Now this I don't mind working on. This I don't mind working on. But man, this and this, uh, let's wait on that. Maybe we need to be brutally honest with ourselves and see what really is clean and what really is unclean. What really is proud and vain and egocentric and selfish and what is not and do something about it. I don't want to be here, do you? I, I don't want to be in this. I want to escape it. It's just hard for us to grasp that it really is coming, and it really is coming soon, and it really could include us. We have been so protected in America for so long that we can't imagine how it could happen to us. If there's anything we need to get across out of this is, yes, it could happen to us, and unless we do something about it, it will happen to us. 
God tells us what to do about it. They have none understanding. They are wise to do evil. We're streetwise. We're wise to do evil. But to do good, they have no knowledge. It's the way the world is, our nation around us, and it's the way most of the church is. I hope we are having the blindness stripped from our eyes so that we can see clearly what needs to be done. We have made a contract to very shortly, in the next two or three months, have a first-class website installed, up and running, and available. This kind of message needs to be on it so that people do have access. Jonathan is running a company that's going to do that for us. Gave us a very good price on it compared to what he socks it to other people. I don't know how bad he's socking it to us, but he certainly socks others a lot worse. <laughs> I'm kidding you, Jonathan. I appreciate you coming forward and, and making the offer, and, and he's declared that he will make it first class, and I know that he will. I believe he has the capacity and the ability, and we have those who have been working on it and had fallen behind in the curve of learning and were unable to find people who were dependable, even though they've tried very hard and have made a good effort to do it, and uh, it just hasn't worked very well, despite the efforts, and I appreciate the efforts that have gone into it, and uh, those may even work some with Jonathan to, to help and do what they can to aid and abet it, for all I know, but um, I do feel that we need a first-class window to let the world see what we're learning. And if they want it, want it, it'll be there. But I still fail to come up with a viable way to reach the church other than the worldwide spider web. Uh, I think the journal is out. I've considered it and blown hot and cold on that, but there's just too much there of the daughter's like in the book of Esther, vying back and forth to see who is the fairest of them all and who can decorate themselves up to be chosen. There's too much competition. There's too much of a wrong approach and a competition and attitude that is there. We're the best. We're the finest. So I don't want to be in a publication. I'm not talking against the journal. They, they're doing the job that they want to do probably fairly well, trying to let people mouth off. But there's a lot of mouthing off that's being done that is unprofitable. And I don't want to be in the middle of that competition. Now, in one sense, maybe the Internet's the same way because a lot of different ones have uh, sites. But at the same time, we will stand on our own as our own thing as opposed to advertising in a newspaper that has advertisements from everybody showing that they are the fairest of them all. So I, I don't think that that is a proper organism, organism for us, but the Internet probably will be for a certain period of time. So we're going to work very hard 
at getting it up and running and in a very quality fashion and get as much on it as we can. So that is our goal and purpose, and I think that it shall be accomplished. <clears throat> now let's see. We're getting close to the end of this, and I still have some verses to go, so let's finish this chapter at least. They're wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I think it is our job to present to them what is clean and what is unclean, what is good, what is bad, so that they do have knowledge available. And maybe they can, to some degree, or some of them, deliver themselves from what is coming. We're not here just to save our hides. We're here to help as much as we possibly can, and whatever venues are available to us, we should use. I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. This is speaking in the gathering storm at the end, and ultimately concluding in the day of the Lord, which is a day of darkness, gloominess, cloudiness, as Joel and other places tell us. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. So they're beginning to shake. They're eventually going to shake hard and come down. But when this begins, the mountains, the governments, the big governments, the little governments, the mountains and the hills, trembles lightly. They're beginning to feel a quake. They're beginning to feel trouble. Doesn't our own government in Washington begin, isn't it beginning now to tremble lightly? How many indictments will they have to pass out? How many people will have to be made ashamed? How many people will have to go to jail? How deep will these scandals reach? They keep investigating, and they're finding evil. And it's hitting very strongly in the White House right now. And the opinion polls of President Bush are down in the 30s of approval rates. Do you think somewhere his foundation is beginning to shake lightly? Beginning to fear what's coming next? Beginning to patch holes wherever they can? Remember how it started out with Tricky Dick Nixon? Trying to patch the holes? Lie, cover it, lie, cover up, cover up. Not me, not us, we didn't do anything. Eventually it all came out. Don't you think some of those people in the White House don't remember that? And now they're covering holes and patching wherever they can. But it just keeps coming. They do not have the vote and the confidence of the people anymore, and they have fear of the courts. Seems like everything they do is the wrong thing. Appoint a Supreme Court justice who has... No experience in judgment. Just cronyism is the cry. Where will it go? I don't know. Will she be approved? Maybe so. doesn't really matter too much. But every time you do something, you catch flack from it. Pretty soon you begin to kind of tremble lightly. You know, what can I do right? Everything I do, I get criticized for. becomes pretty tiresome. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. Everybody's running for cover. Birds, men, everyone. 
They start trembling, and then they start running. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness. God gave, as is promised to Abraham, this people, us, a very beautiful nation, a fruitful nation, a productive, verdant land, beautiful. We've sung about it. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, and on and on. We talk about it. We sing about it. America the beautiful. Oh, yes, it's been a very fruitful land. Blessed above most anywhere on earth. But the fruitful place is soon to be an absolute wilderness. Would it do us any good to settle in Ohio or Nebraska or Kansas or North Dakota or wherever you want a name that has been fruitful? Here we're stuck out in the desert. Now God is going to make those places that have been very fruitful, unfruitful, and wilderness. I've said at times, God could have given us a beautiful place like Ohio where the Amish can drive their little carts and provide a living for themselves. Instead, he put us out here in this waste, howling wilderness, desert. Does he know what he's doing? You could ask. Why didn't he give us? I've driven all over this country, and I see a lot of places that are a lot more productive than where I'm living now. Now, I hope they are not in any way more spiritually productive. I hope, I hope, I hope. But they're certainly more physically productive. But you know what? One of these soon days, that will switch. And those areas that have been productive are going to become wilderness. And that which has been unproductive to the glory of the great God will produce like a rose. Fruitful place was the wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord and by his fierce anger. Our cities, all of them, are going to be destroyed. He may sick the devil on us to do it. He may sick the Gentiles on us to do it. But never mistake that God is behind it, just as he's been behind the destruction of the church. He is the one that declared there would not be one stone left upon another. Total destruction. Hasn't occurred yet. It's in process, not finished. It's just beginning to happen to the physical nation, and it will increase until it is finished. For thus has the Eternal said, The whole land shall be desolate, yet I will not make a full end. Other scriptures show us 10% will survive, or more like 9%. For this shall the earth mourn, and the heavens above be black, because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not relent, neither will I turn back from it. It's just going to happen. There is no getting away from it. I'll show you a place very shortly where it says, don't even pray for this people. It will do absolutely no good. Maybe I'm getting ahead of the story. He will not turn back. It will happen. The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen, for the armies that invade. They shall go into the thickets and climb upon the rocks. Reminds you of the book of Joel. 
mighty men that cannot be stopped. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwells therein. It's funny how we interpret that song we sing. And we think that those mighty men are God's spiritual army. Well, that's the army he sends to destroy our country that we're singing about in the book of Joel. They'll climb upon the rocks, every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. And when you are spoiled, what will you do? What can you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you deck you with the ornaments of gold, Though you rend or revile, cut out, hide, tear your face with painting, in vain shall they make shall you make yourself fair. You see this coming, you see it about to happen, and you take great uh, effort to gussy yourself up so that maybe it won't happen not going to help any. You can dress yourself up to look good, but God says if it doesn't come from here and here, it won't do any good. All those girls that were in the competition with Queen Esther did whatever they could to themselves to get whatever little advantage they could get in physical looks and presence so that he might choose them. She stayed as natural as she could and only took those clothes that were given her by the keeper of the women, and she won the competition. What are you going to do? You're going to put on your best and go out there and say, don't destroy me. What good is that going to do you? What will you do? You'll try. You'll try to figure out something that would save your hide. In vain shall you make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. America is, is portrayed in Ezekiel 16, as the great whore. What does a whore do to try to prevent her destruction? She tries to make herself look as fetching as possible. She puts her best foot forward, which isn't much. There's a great deal of human trade and slavery in America today. They are capturing runaways. There's a big article about it in the latest U.S. News and World Report. I think it was that magazine, one of them anyway. 14, 15, 16 years of age. They take them to the big truck stops to service the drivers. 14, 15, 16 years of age. Your daughters sitting right here, are in grave danger of being kidnapped and turned into prostitutes. It's happening in this country. The FBI and other governmental bodies are investigating it, and they have been shocked and appalled at how widespread it is. They like the runaway girls better because no one really is looking for them. They figure they just ran away, we can't find them, they don't want to come back anyhow. So they like those better. But they're not above being opportunistic for others they can capture. One of the girls that was rescued out of it 
said she would be dead by the time she was 21. That was the, all the prospect of life she felt she honestly had. Between drugs and disease and violence and vengeance from pimps, she did not expect to live beyond age 21. What a life to look forward to if you're a 14-year-old girl forced into prostitution. It is very widespread in our country. There are girls being sold in Russia and other countries taken through Greece, brought to America, and made slaves and prostitutes by the tens of thousands. As I speak today, what's going on behind the scenes is not what is being portrayed to us in the public life. What will you do? Will it do any good to put on your great whore clothes, America, and try to entice your lovers to come back to bed instead of cutting off your head? Won't do any good. That's what he's saying. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life. For I have heard a voice as of a woman in travail, screaming like a woman having a baby. And the anguish as of her that brings forth her first child, that's the one that is unexpected and hurts the worst. After that, they tend to come a little easier, and you know what to expect, and the pain isn't as bad because you've done it before. But the cry and the screaming is going to be like your first child. The voice of the daughter of Zion that bewails herself, that spreads her hand saying, Woe is me now! For my soul is wearied because of murderers. The church, because of those who are killing us, spiritually murdering us by not telling us the truth about what needs to be done and saying, peace, peace, you're all okay if you're here. It's not the message the church needs to hear. What we need to hear is there's great destruction in the church and it will continue and now it is going to spread to our physical nation. And unless we come under the protection and the guidance and the hope offered by God, we will die. And we will die under terrible conditions. Those are the words of Jeremiah the prophet, written for those of us upon whom the ends of the age have come. I'm not going to leave this very positive. I'm out of time today, this chapter ends that way. I think it's something we need to think seriously about. I like, I like to leave you uplifted, inspired. I like to leave you feeling very hopeful. But on the same, the same time, God may want us to dwell on some of this. It's coming for a while. There will be some hopeful things come up later. So don't be discouraged and go kill yourself ahead of time. The Gentile is on his way and he'll take care of it for you. You don't, you know, you don't have to do it ahead of time and try to preempt him. But let's be serious about what it is we need to do. Because God loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And if we love each other and help each other and strengthen each other, we can get the job that Jeremiah tells us needs to be done, done. And we can save our hides as well as be there as a comfort and a help and an opportunity for others to come to us and we can help the weak and the afflicted and the needy. And we can be a part of the protection that God makes. 
So there is a big job for us to do, a tremendous responsibility that comes with just having the knowledge that we're talking about today. But the rewards will be great. So if you need something positive out of this, out of all this darkness, there is hope and there's opportunity for those who will turn to God and receive his blessing rather than what the destroyer of the Gentiles has bound to determine and will bring on our people.